You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we talk to the founder of Wonder Capital, Mr. Brian Berzik. Brian's forte is renewable energy. As you'll quickly see in this conversation, there are many things about renewable energy that are drastically different than fossil fuels and other types of businesses that we typically talk about. So if you're interested in solar, wind, or other forms of energy, you'll find this discussion quite interesting. For example, you'll learn about energy sometimes having a negative price where the producer actually has to pay someone to remove the power off the grid. You'll learn whether renewables are a decent investment investment during recessions. You'll also learn about what might happen if subsidies were diminished in the marketplace. So without further delay, we hope you enjoy this very thoughtful conversation from the talented Brian Berzik. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. Uh, We are thrilled to have everyone with us today. And like we said in the introduction, we have Brian Bursick with us today. So, Brian, how are you doing? I'm doing great this morning. That's fantastic. Well, we are thrilled to have you here with us. And I want to start off by setting the foundation of what you've accomplished in a very short amount of time. You've been in business for five years. And in that short amount of time, you have rapidly grown your business and you just recently raised $112 million in venture capital. So talk to us about the struggles. Talk to us about the passion that you have for renewable. And uh, we're just, this is going to be really fascinating. So lay it on us. <laughs> More than a few struggles along the way, as always. <laughs> um yeah, so uh, you know, it's interesting that that you started, um, you know, the interview around the topic of passion because Wonder actually was birthed from three serial founders um, in the technology uh, startup space that all were looking for something that took what they believed in, changes they wanted to see, problems they were excited about solving, and combined it with. Um, a background in technology startups and how to build them and how to raise capital and how to build scalable software and attract teams and all, all of those good things. And uh, so Wonder was really an outgrowth of us trying to take our backgrounds and combine it with our passions. And we really feel as though, um, A, as people that are, of course, a part of the company um, and have to go out and, and um, you know, build the startup, the ability to throw yourself into it and get up on a hard day or do that extra leg of travel or you know, get another no from a from a venture capitalist um, with a smile and go right back to work is is so much easier, frankly, uh, for us. And just comparing this company to some previous companies that I've been involved in, um, we think it's just uh, a lot easier when you're making these hard sacrifices to know exactly why you're doing it and be really excited about the impact you can have if you solve the problem you're going after. And then, you know, from a purely kind of Machiavellian standpoint, and I tell this to VC sometimes when they're, you know, worried about us being, uh, you know, a nonprofit in, in disguise, um, that, you know, today across hiring, across marketing, um, having an authentic and compelling story about why what you're doing above and beyond the economics is exciting and enduring and impactful, uh, we think is a huge advantage, you know, irrespective of how you feel about those things just from a pure, as I say, kind of Machiavellian <laughs> standpoint and, 
It's not why we do it, but I do think there's a good argument to be made. It's actually a huge economic advantage as well. Um, so yeah, in a, in a lot of ways, Wonder was us, as I say, taking that passion, combining it with things we knew about. In the case of our CTO, Solar, in the case of me, software-enabled commercial lending, and um, putting it together with our background in, uh, in technology startups. And that's, that's basically where Wonder came from. So do you think that you could have been successful about uh, Wonder if you didn't have the passion for renewable energy? You know, you hear a lot of these CEOs and some of them are saying, you know, it, it, it doesn't really matter if it's, you know, a dishwasher or if it's, say, solar or water bottles, whatever it is, because it's about building a business. So how do you, how do you see that? Um, I think that that's really authentic and true for them. Um, and I applaud their focus on, you know, really not the products that the engine creates, but the engine itself, right, to use that analogy. And I think there's some examples of wonderful companies um, doing a lot of good that whose product really has very little to do with that impact. You know, I, I think what what I worry about is um, what happens when that market commoditizes and your profit margins don't support a bunch of things that actually aren't core to what you do, right? Or uh, what happens when, you know, to choose one of my favorite companies and entrepreneurs, when Yvonne Chouinard, God forbid, eventually passes like we all will, you know, does Patagonia continue to spend on things that do they have to if they were maximizing profit margin? I'm not sure. So what I like about what we do, frankly, relative to some of those things is inherently in our business, we, you know, do something that I think we all believe is positive. So, you know, we finance solar projects if more solar gets built because we have great financing packages, that is a positive. And there's really no way to divorce that. Whoever's running Wonder, um, you know, uh, Warren Buffett has that great quote about, uh, you know, build a company or invest as if monkeys are running it because eventually they will or something. Maybe, that's, maybe that's Munger. That sounds a little, it's a little ornery. That sounds more like Munger maybe, but uh, there's a great uh, Berkshire Hathaway founder quote anyway um, along those lines. And I think um, companies that inherently by what they do, do something positive uh, just are a little more sustainable in the sense that, um, you know, like I said, as long as we're financing solar, we think that's positive. There's not really any way to get around that. Whereas, um, you know, I do think some of those things are luxury items, so to speak, for a corporation that you can afford when you're growing or you have a defensible moat. But, you know, if you're in a cutthroat commodity business, which, you know, you kind of have to assume at some point, you know, some markets might look like that. Can you support a lot of these extra expenditures? I don't know. I don't know. I worry about that pressure. So, so that, that's, that's how I think about it. But I, I love what those folks do. And I think, you know, like I said, they're really authentic and um, making that the focus of where they find purpose, not the thing that they make. You know, we, we're more than 200 episodes in. That's four years here on the podcast. And I think this is the first time we talked about investing in renewables. And uh, we should probably be ashamed because we talk a lot about fossil fuels. We talk very, very <laughs> little. We talk about Tesla more from the fan perspective. But really, we are value investors. That's kind of like our basics. You know, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger that you mentioned before. So if this is our starting point, we primarily talk about stocks and bonds. Now, how is investing in solar projects different? Yeah, I mean, I think um, folks are probably familiar with some of the solar stories, the, the positive ones and the negative ones in the public markets. Um, um, you know, and if they're not, there's, there's plenty written about it. Um, so this is a market, of course, that you can go out in the, the public equity markets and the public debt markets in some cases and kind of participate as an investor. 
Um, the analogy that we like to use is akin to um, real estate. And the reason we use real estate is both real estate and solar projects or solar assets um, generate cash flow as long as there's a customer to consume them. And they also um, don't have a lot of complexity, um, not a lot of moving parts, not a lot of braking, and therefore uh, they tend to last a really long time. Good solar panels being put up now have 25-year, 80% production warranties, which means they're warranted to produce 80% of their headline number on day one on year 25, which is, I think, kind of amazing. So anyway, the analogy that we like to make is think of you know betting on the solar cities, the Vivens, et cetera, of the world. Of course, solar cities, now Tesla Energy, excuse me. You know, Think of those folks as who's going to build those homes right? That's the Ryan homes or whoever the comp is in the residential home space. Whereas what we're trying to do is uh, figure out how to invest in that ongoing cash flow that is the rent that that house could generate, right? Um, and the solar project equivalent of that is, you know, taking as your collateral when you're doing your lending, basically the electricity generation and therefore the cash flow, like I say, if you can go sell it, um, that's associated with that system. And so uh, basically, we are betting on things like, uh, will they continue to pay? Uh, and then will that system continue to hold value? Because it can produce power that's cheaper than uh, the utility power in that area. So, so basically, that is, you know, we're not betting on, or our investors aren't in our portfolios, who's going to take market share, right? Or who's, you know, which hardware is going to win out. Um, this is really just about who's on the other side of this, you know, contract, who's purchasing this power from the start. And then is that a solid kind of both asset and economic situation, right? A place where power is kind of expensive, such that solar can offer a discount, let's say. And so those are the sorts of things we're analyzing. So it just has a very, very different risk profile than betting on, as we say, which technology is going to win out or which installer is going to take market share. So Brian, I'm curious, what risk profile can we compare your investments to? Are the cash flows variable? Are they fairly consistent? Uh, for instance, are the investments more like fixed income bonds where you have a steady cash flow or is it more equity like? Uh, it, it's, it's structured a lot of different ways is, is the long answer. Um, the shorter answer is that there are people structuring it in such a way uh, in most cases whereby if those systems, however they're financed, continue to pay, there is some cash flow stream or waterfall such that people are getting paid out on the other side. So it's generally not this kind of corporate guarantee at some holding company level. It's generally tied to what is the performance of a given portfolio of projects, whether they're you know, huge ones out in the desert or lots of small ones that are homes. Um, now, again, that manifests in lots of ways. But I think you know, the reason that we get excited about, I think, the, the comparisons to real estate, which is obviously a really big and liquid financing market compared to solar, you have this dynamic whereby almost irrespective of who's on the other side of the transaction, you have some kind of asset that if you did your work well across the portfolio, you should have some nice dynamics as it relates to in, in, in real estate. You're getting a lot more projected yield than you would get in real estate because solar is a relatively novel asset class. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. You know, despite what Elon Musk is doing with his battery packs and all that good stuff, uh, you know, we're, we're talking, what, one, two seconds uh, from whenever the electricity is created until it needs to be, uh, to be consumed. And, and here in the stock market uh, world, you know, we, we talk about volatility. And if a stock drops more than a few percentage, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's extremely volatile. And you see a lot of, you can see a lot of panic. But then whenever you look at the price of power, um, I, used to, I used to trade power um, intraday, so that's even more volatile. You could see like the price change a thousand percent within 10, 20 minutes. Um, and you can, even, you can even talk about negative prices on electricity. Can you, can you please explain to us like how can you as a salesperson get you know, a negative price for your good really? Yeah, sure. Um, so California has been uh, experiencing this a little bit recently uh, because of solar and uh, Texas has it occasionally because of uh, all the wind in West Texas. But effectively, there are um, costs associated with grounding power. Um, you have to do something with, with this electricity once you generate it. And so if you have meaningfully more uh, supply of electricity than demand, uh, then you actually have to pay someone to do something with it. Uh, a lot of the time to literally uh, sink it into the ground. So that is, there's a market for that. And when that market kicks in, uh, the price of electricity at the wholesale level uh, goes negative. Back to the conversation we were just having, it's a great way to, to describe probably in a, in a more clear way, the difference between avoided cost and sending power back to the grid. Because if you're talking about avoided costs, you're talking about the avoided cost of retail power. 
And as you know, the retail cost of power is not a liquid market at all. In fact, it is often set on an annual basis between a public utility commission and the utility. So um, the avoided cost of retail power is incredibly consistent. You'll have a rate card. It might be, you know, an average in the U.S. It might be 10 cents uh, per kilowatt hour. You might have some kind of demand charge, and that does not change. And so when you're thinking about, you know, the avoided cost of power of that idea of having, hey, I used to pay the utility 100 units. Now I pay them only 20 units for 20 units uh, that I might use at night when my solar isn't producing. To your point, though, if you look at the wholesale price of power, the, what you know, the utilities are dealing with on the wholesale level, both purchasing power from the grid, which is kind of what you're referring to, but even just the pricing of you know, the, the hydrocarbon inputs into their natural gas peaking plants, into their coal plants, et cetera, that is incredibly volatile. And so when you're sending power back to the grid in the middle of the day, you're actually participating in a wildly different market right? than you're participating in when you've avoided, avoided power consumption, uh, which, as I, as I say, is retail. So um, that's actually a great lens through which to explain why I think investors into solar portfolios, if that's something investors are starting to look into. It's very interesting speaking to investors, not just investors in, in solar projects, but also investors in, say, fossil fuels. And whenever we start talking about what are the impact of renewables, uh, someone typically says that, oh, you can't store power. I mean, even though that we, we might walk around with their phone in our pocket and we are storing a little solar energy, it's not the effect is, is very little. And at least the, the old truth is that storing is hard. Uh, it's also hard with the power grid. Uh, there's a lot of problems with infrastructure of power. So it's not just a question of we are consuming energy. Now we are also creating energy, say, from, from the sun. There, there seems to be a mismatch there between the two, some structural uh, problems. Could you talk to us, like, how far are we from solving that problem? And it's a really good question because obviously we do a lot of things um, when the sun's not up. And uh, we have never really had cost-effective storage, except for the, the best that we have right now, uh, anecdotally, is pushing water up very large hills and then releasing it down onto turbines when we need the power. Uh, that's, that's our most cost-effective storage option right now, which is, which is interesting, but requires a very unique geography that most places don't have, so it's not very scalable. But the... Short answer is that you really do need to figure out the storage problem if solar is going to be a you know, complete solution or a near complete solution. The somewhat longer answer is that wind and solar in a really amazing way complement each other. Um, there's a great kind of heat map that showed through a 24-hour cycle when wind and solar produced. And it's almost perfect in that when solar starts to go down, the wind starts to pick up. Uh, wind blows more at night. As the wind starts to die down, the solar picks up. So I do think that wind and solar can complement each other in helpful ways. You can actually do a decent bit with high voltage transmission lines. Uh, Western Europe is the best example of this, but the sun is obviously distributed quite a bit across Europe and North Africa. And if you can make kind of allow those markets to talk to each other, so to speak, you can push around when someone's earlier in the day and later in the day and kind of help a little bit with that. But yep. fundamentally, I think that might get you, um, you know, maybe only to 75%. Um, renewables penetration. I'm not sure if that gets you all the way there. Oh, wow. Uh, thanks for, uh, for that response. Brian, it's very interesting to hear your, your take on uh, you know, setting on the price. We're talking about renewable energy. This is something that, that a lot of us really like to talk about and think about. You know, Despite all the problems that we have with meeting demand and supply, which, which is really the, uh, another issue, 
we do see more and more renewables. Now, a lot of the reasons why we see that, that really also comes from the subsidies that you find in the market. And it seems like there are like two schools whenever we're looking at subsidies. You, ha- you have the school that's saying, the economic school that is saying that the infant industry argument, right? That you need to support an industry that can't support itself, especially if it's good for the environment. There's typically also a lot of labor involved. So, so that, that's great. Then you have the other guys, the other school of, of uh, economics who are saying, well, if this is not efficient enough, if fossil fuel, for the sake of argument, is just cheaper, it's, it's, it's a better product, you can store it better, or whatever the, the argument is, if it's economically feasible to use fossil fuels, why would you use anything else? What would happen, and I know this is an ungrateful question, but what would happen to the solar industry today if we just stopped all the subsidies, say, in the U.S.? And there are quite a few states that would be cost-effective without any subsidy. But I think the, the broader question is, what kind of confidence can you develop that this will be the solution in the future? And I think where that confidence lies for me is in um, a curve that looks a lot like Moore's Law in semiconductors. It is on an algorithmic graph incredibly straight from about 1978 to today, and that's the cost of solar modules uh, decreasing in price roughly 10% a year for 45 years. You know, the, the, I think the answer to the question about why do we not stick with fossil fuels, uh, partially because we know eventually they're going to go away, and we would prefer not to go back to the dark ages when that painful transition occurs. Hopefully, it's not so painful if we can scale up renewables. Hmm. Um, but I think the, the shorter term answer is that uh, there's a lot of confidence and I think um, a lot of track record to suggest that solar will be in a decade dramatically cheaper. In fact, already you're seeing solar beat out um, you know, hydrocarbons with regularity at the utility scale uh, in places where it's quite sunny. So that day is, is already here. And what we see uh, looking forward on that cost curve, going back to your question about subsidy, is that by 2022, which is when the current subsidy at the federal level is um, set, uh, step down meaningfully, not actually expire fully, but step down meaningfully, by that date, uh, we believe that 50 states, all 50 states in the U.S. will be cost effective without any subsidy. So we are within five years, if you continue that cost curve per our analysis of solar standing on its own two feet. And if that is to occur, um, I think there's a really fair question to be asked about why we ceded our early lead in solar to China, who has done a spectacular job um, predicting this growth, getting ahead of it, supporting that industry, and getting to the economies of scale that allow you to win on the cost front. And that uh, you know, Trump's pretty worthless subsidy aside. Uh, U.S. manufacturers are very unlikely to get to at this point. We're likely to be simply consumers of this technology, not the manufacturers. So when we talk to oil and coal guys, we hear many of them talk about why renewables are going to take a long time and numerous other bearish factors. But I'm kind of curious, you know, how do you see things progressing as we move forward from this point? I think that there's a lot of power concentrated in not so many hands on the regulatory and on the uh, large utility and large independent power producer front that can accelerate or decelerate solar, solar's adoption and growth 
um, and more broadly renewables adoption and growth by keeping what we think is an inevitable transition uh, of the grid from a very fragile, top-down, centralized, unidirectional network to a multimodal, flexible, you know, bidirectional network. So, I mean, as a network theorist, if you look at those two models, it's very, very clear which is more appealing. And the only reason we've had this centralized, incredibly fragile model is because the economies of scale of burning enormous amounts of coal in the middle of a field way outside of town relative to all of us, as funny as it sounds, having little coal facilities on our roofs is, uh, is pretty compelling, right? When you look at hydrocarbons, uh, when you look at solar and moreover, as you look at batteries, um, they scale down beautifully. There's actually not a lot of, uh, they actually kind of have diseconomies of scale almost in the sense that, you know, a couple of panels that you buy relatively cheap and throw up yourself on your roof because they're, it's a really simple job can actually be cheaper on a per kilowatt basis than, than, than one of the big commercial systems we do. So uh, both of those things scale down beautifully. And if the costs are relatively similar, what you want is lots and lots of places generating power, lots of places that are capable of storing, lots of trading and information flow between them, something that looks a lot more like the Internet of Energy. And that is the kind of grid that would accelerate the uh, adoption of renewables and storage. And by the way, blackouts, there's no reason to have blackouts. That's insane. That's like, like a rolling blackout on the internet. Like what? You know, like, how yeah. the, what is it? Are you, are you kidding me? Like you've, you've one point that if it fails, like 20,000 people don't have power. Like that, that's, that's crazy. Uh, that's not good. And the kind of grid that, that we think we're going to have in 2050, you know, would not have those kind of characteristics. Uh, because of its dynamism and multinodal dynamics. So the question we think is, is that the future that we start seeing in 2020? Because folks are kind of thoughtful and progressive in a, in a literal sense, not a political sense, um, about uh, the new resources we have and reimagining the grid for that purpose? Or do they stick to what they've always done in a relatively state industry for 100 years? I worry it's the latter. Hmm. Interesting. So, Brian, if you're sitting there as an investor and you're considering to diversifying into renewables one way or the other uh, as a part of your portfolio, now we're sitting here at the top of the market cycle, or at least you think it's top of the market cycle. Uh, we look at stocks that are expensive, bonds are expensive. How do renewable correlate with stocks and bonds? And do you have any data on that and, and what happened during the last financial crisis? Yeah, totally. Um, one of the unfortunate things about being a relatively new asset class is that a lot of the times, even though there's some data on the last credit cycle, uh, the portfolios in the industry is kind of apples to oranges, you know, relative to, to nine years ago. So unfortunately, we're one of those asset classes that uh, is young enough that we haven't been through a couple. And like I say, you know, talk, talking back to that 10% uh, per year price decrease, you go back to 2009 and some of the portfolios that they were working on then might have been built in 2006 or 2007. We're talking about literally something like two to three X more expensive solar. So the financial burden on those systems relative to what they were producing was literally two to three X more. And so it's really hard to try to back into, um, and, and also the volume was literally orders of magnitude less. So um, it's, it's, there's not a lot of great data. It's a lot of, do you believe this series of you know, positions or pieces of data? And do you believe that will lead to a positive outcome in a credit cycle? I think combined with how much, how much cushion based on, you know, adopting a relatively new asset class. 
your uh, loss rate math is default percentage multiplied by recovery value equals loss rate, right? And uh, I would not make the argument that solar is somehow special in that we're going to have lower default rates than um, you know you'd see in other in other places that have assets behind them because no one wants to default on something that they've already paid off some principal on. Right. So, um, you know, I, I, I do think most of the defaults are going to be not strategic defaults, but actual, uh, I don't have the cash to come up with it kind of defaults. And if that's the case, it should, you know, solar shouldn't have some huge advantage. I think where you want to focus your attention is on those recovery values. Uh, what is the most recent data we have as to when someone defaults on the original contract, whatever form that took? the financing entity has to take ownership of the system, what kind of recovery has been achieved? And uh, Solar City published the first public data that I'm aware of in 2014 in their first public securitization. So they took a, I believe it was a 2011 portfolio and securitized it in 2014 and took it out to the market uh, successfully in three different issuances. And they reported on their recovery value, they call it contract reassignment because they have original contract and then they reassign it to a new homeowner if it's broken the first time. But they reported 81 cents on the dollar recovery uh, with these assets, which is fairly spectacular, um, in my opinion. You know, If you have 10% default rates, which would be relatively high on any kind of credit worthy portfolio, um, and you're only seeing 2% loss rates because you're getting 80 cents on the dollar back, that's, that's a very strong place to be, uh, I think, in the next credit cycle. So you know, this goes back to if you're going to dig into this space, I would suggest that you really understand what these portfolios value is and where it comes from. Is it behind the meter? Is it avoided cost? Um, did they, you know, think of building this portfolio with that asset in mind, doing things like not putting systems on really old buildings that are crumbling, who someone might not move into, not putting systems on specialty real estate that are a lot harder to fill, i.e. a brewery, than general real estate, i.e. commercial office space that is easy to fill. So I think these are the kinds of questions that investors should be interested in if they're interested in solar, because the reason I think you get excited about solar is because you believe, going back to that real estate comp, that there's this asset sitting behind it that has some really nice characteristics and some really good early data that in this next credit cycle, we think and project will benefit from a flight to quality, not be hurt by it. At least we think that's what the fundamentals will show. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3500. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? 
So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. If I look at something like renewables, if I'm looking at energy, it seems like the demand would still be somewhat stable. And please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm not talking really during the day because you have your peak hours, you know, whenever people are getting up, trying to work, whenever they come back, they heat up the stove and they turn on the TV. Like you, you have your peaks uh, during the day. But if you, if you look at this like in the grand scheme of things, what are the moving parts really on the demand side? And what's happening to the, to the supply side? Say that if we see a crash, then you will also see crash in the, on the oil price that might be more sensitive to this, which will then in relative terms make uh, solar more uh, interesting and then renewables. Can you talk us through like your train of thoughts and the demand side and the supply side? Sorry, I, it's such a long-winded question here. No. Yeah, so I mean, on the demand side... You know, you're you're obviously right that there's some distribution through the day. Um, you know, people leave their homes if there's not, you know, people staying in the home, then that goes down. But then they light up 30 minutes later at their office, um, and so that kind of bi-directional network that I described before should be able to fairly easily handle uh, kind of pushing power around to where people are. You know, we all need to be cooled and kind of fed, and you know, occasionally wash our hands and and all the good stuff. You know, have light. Um, you know, wherever we are. And so they're, they're actually across the whole grid, as I'm sure you know, from the wholesale markets, there's not a, a wild amount of variation besides that driven by, 
you know, kind of weather and, um, you know, hydrocarbons deal with that as well, right? That's why we have natural gas peaking plants that have to spin up. You know, I think on the demand side, what's interesting and somewhat unprecedented is for the first time ever, GDP growth and uh, electricity consumption have been divorced. And this is obviously going to the macro level. But, you know, you have seen energy efficiency take a, you know, a bit of a cut into, you know, the growth of total electricity demand. And we think that'll roughly continue. We do think the low-hanging fruit on energy efficiency has already been had, and therefore each incremental decrease, there's probably some kind of, um, you know, flattening of the returns to those those kinds of spends. But you know, the other huge question, and this definitely also gets to what kind of strain there's going to be on the grid at different times of day. Do electric vehicles penetrate in such a way that you see the energy consumption that's currently focused on oil uh, transition to the electricity grid? Um, and if you look at just pure energy units, transportation is roughly the size of the entire electricity grid. So uh, that moving in a significant way onto the grid would create a need for literally an unprecedented amount of new electricity capacity build um, that we haven't seen since the early days of the industry and people electrifying various industries. So I think that that is a huge you know, lever as to what the grid looks like and the demand side looks like in uh, over the next 10 to 20 years. And uh, you mentioned Tesla earlier, but, you know, uh, we've seen, I think, some pretty compelling signs the last two to three years from other automakers that they think the industry is going electric over a 10 to 20 year time frame. So uh, we think there's some real possibility there. And it, it's also worth pointing out that, you know, these EVs are batteries on wheels. And when they are sitting in different places, you can use them as storage in a way that incrementally people aren't actually paying for, which is to say, if you go and buy a Tesla Model 3 when they finally make the base model for 36 grand, you're not pricing into that the value of a battery in the grid's you know, midday usage while you're parked at the office, right? And you opt into some program. So um, there's also this really interesting way in which EVs might change the dynamics of battery economics because you kind of two for one on the battery. And these batteries kind of show up, so to speak, because people are buying EVs, not because they need to be on the grid, but you can tap them into the grid. So, so that's the demand side. You know, on the supply side, there are, I think, more and more signs that coal is going away. You know, natural gas has put a little bit of pricing pressure, but, um, you know, frankly, even the non-climate change environmental dynamics have gotten kind of more and more challenging. And uh, on price, they're simply not competing. And with an asset that might last 35 or 40 years, I think people are increasingly uncomfortable, including big insurance companies that have recently made announcements to this effect. But they're uncomfortable betting that there won't be some kind of carbon tax or there won't be some kind of additional price on coal in such a way that it's not economically competitive. So, you know, the trend lines on, on, on coal are, are, are you know, I, I think the writing's on the wall uh, that that's not going to be a huge part of the future. Brian, when we think about uh, the energy market, we all know it's very cyclical. Uh, for big oil, they saw enormous price swings back in the 2008-2009 timeframe, then again in the 2014-2015 timeframe. And from an R&D perspective, this can be really difficult stuff uh, for making investment decisions. So uh, since you're an investor in this space, how do you think through those factors and just kind of what's your thought process with respect to that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, again, going back to the retail versus the wholesale dynamic, it's worth understanding that if you're a solar researcher or someone that controls R&D, all of the distributed solar, both the very large residential market and the growing commercial market, their pricing and their competitiveness is going to be based on retail electricity prices, not based on what's going on in the wholesale market. It doesn't matter what's going on with coal, natural gas, oil, 
you know, it's 12 cents or whatever it might be in Wisconsin. And if you make an investment from an R&D perspective that, you know, contributes towards distributed solar, the likelihood that that, you know, and again, it's the most boring graph of all time, retail electricity pricing goes up two to 4% a year. The bet you're making that in five years or 10 years, it's not going to be, you know, below 12 cents has historically been a really, really, really good bet. So I think it is worth separating something like wind that only operates at the utility scale level and is enormously impacted by swings really more in coal and natural gas than oil, although there's some correlation between the hydrocarbons, right, from a trading perspective. Um, although that seems to be less coupled than it used to be, I think partially because of this dynamic I'm describing, which is oil is really a transportation fuel. There's not really oil being used to create electricity, setting aside places like Hawaii. And natural gas and coal are really the prices you're looking to. So something like wind or utility scale solar, right, the folks going out and building these enormous systems in the desert, they're very much impacted by those prices. You know, the other thing I'll say, and you'll obviously understand this given your background, but volatility has a cost. And one of the great things about these solar systems, and part of the reason I think they're winning some of these bids is there are not input costs once you build these systems. The sun is going to show up every morning for you, right? And you're not going to have to send it uh, any cash for it, to, for it to get out of bed. Whereas, you know, your input costs with coal and natural gas are obviously, as you say, can vary wildly and, and really change over time. So knowing that, hey, I've got this big upfront cost, I'm going to build this solar system, but then I have no input costs and I can model this in a really predictable way. Uh, at least as relates to the generation of the electricity, I don't have to worry about spikes in coal costs or violence or political unrest in places that inconveniently have a lot of hydrocarbons, which there's obviously this very inconvenient correlation between not particularly well-run governments and places with hydrocarbons, <laughs> right? The, uh, the, the well-known curse. So, so, so I think there are a couple ways to slice that up, but I do think solar benefits enormously from the fact that we get to bet on retail prices being consistent. And at least you know that portion of the market will be there for you, so to speak, if you're a technology investor or an R&D director. So Brian, you're, you're clearly a wealth of information whenever it comes to not only renewables, but also investing in renewables. What kind of resource can you, can you recommend if the listener sitting out there and they want to, to learn more? They might not be interested in specific investment for them right here and right now, but more to really, really understand the sector as a whole. So whenever they will eventually invest in something, then we'll have a deeper understanding of what is really the underlying mechanisms of what they're investing in. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I'm always a fan of, of nerding out and going deep in an industry and developing some instincts of my own and some intuitions before um, getting there. So um, thanks for the prompt because I think it's a great question. Um, I'm a big fan of podcasts. Green Tech Media actually has a, a great one called Energy Gang with a guy named Stephen Lacey. A couple of other uh, good ones really like one called, I think it's called Energy Transition coming out of Rocky Mountain Institute. That's, uh, that's a great one. So I would, I, I would look to places like Rocky Mountain uh, Institute, uh, NGOs that are leading uh, some of this work. That's kind of the universe of folks that I'd probably get onto a distribution list or subscribe to the podcast and I don't think you'd miss anything big happening and probably get a really good sense of the industry if you followed all those. All right. Uh, that's definitely noted. And we'll make sure to, to embed those links uh, in the show notes. But Brian, I would definitely also like to give you a chance to talk a bit more about yourself and where people can, can learn more about you and your company, Wonder Capital. Sure. Um, yeah. So, you know, as, as I mentioned, I'm a repeat founder. I spent four years in venture capital uh, investing into this space of software-enabled lending. You know, what we really think of ourselves as doing at Wonder is 
bringing a lot of software to an industry that uh, we didn't see a lot of software deployed into, which is getting really compelling financing offers quickly and efficiently to as many businesses, municipalities, schools, hospitals as we can around the country. So that's, that's what we do. That's how we try to accelerate the, um, the clean energy industry and bend down the carbon curve. I am fairly active on Twitter uh, at Bursic. You know, we have a lot of ways to get in touch with us on the site. So come uh, check us out at wondercapital.com if you're interested in either putting up solar or, of course, investing in one of our solar funds. And besides that, you know, folks can, uh, can reach out to me really anywhere they can find me online, um, you know, on LinkedIn and all the typical places. Brian, thanks so much for taking time out of your day to share your knowledge with our community. I know I learned a ton. I'm sure other people out there learned a ton. And Stig and I just thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Really appreciate it. All right, guys. That was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Avestas Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Be